Uh, if you've got a Bible, we're going to begin in Acts 11 tonight. Uh, we spent uh, a night already in Acts 12, um, and we mentioned last time we were in our Acts study that Acts 12 is a little bit of an intermission. Uh, the, the focus shifts back to Jerusalem. Uh, the focus shifts back to Judea, to Peter. Uh, but Acts 11 um, really laid the foundation for what 13 picks up with and what the rest of Acts builds off of. So I want to reread the end of Acts 11 because that's what we're going to really focus on tonight as we get ready for chapter 13, uh, because really our conversation shifts back to Antioch. Uh, remember, uh, everything's been in and around Jerusalem. The church started there. The church was moving from there. Uh, as Peter uh, received vision from God that the church needed to move beyond there, uh, that uh, what, what we find in Acts, 13, Acts 11 is they don't just go to other places. They actually go and plant a church in Antioch, which wasn't necessarily the plan, but it kind of happened naturally, organically, uh, and the church puts its stamp on it. God, more importantly, puts his hand on it, which is what we're going to read about uh, for a few minutes tonight to get us started. Uh, so again, as we get into Acts 13, uh, later on tonight, next week going forward, um, the narrative shifts back to Antioch, which is very important uh, because Antioch is going to be the hub the church really operates out of for the rest of uh, the book. Uh, so I want to reintroduce you to Antioch tonight from Acts 11. Uh, let's reread uh, verses 19 through the end of the chapter so we are familiar with what started there in this little town. Now, those who were scattered after persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who then had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists or the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. Uh, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord." Hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of the Greeks believed. So important, remember what happened with Peter. So all this is happening at the same time. Gentiles are hearing, and Gentiles are believing. Verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord or cleave to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So it was with, so it was with for a whole year that they assembled with the church and were taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all of the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to their ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, and we'll pick back up on that thread at the end of chapter 12 in just a few minutes. Now, remember, Antioch is the first church plant. Uh, we talked extensively about what inspired that plant, what came from that. Now, in our world, we think about churches being on every corner. There are three or four down every road. It's hard to imagine there was one central church in those days, and then there was another one in Antioch. Uh, remember, Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch to oversee operations. Uh, now, maybe at first they were skeptical that this would work. Remember, Peter said, hey, we're not going to stand in God's way, are we? 
we? And they said, no. So they went out and they began preaching and began planting and they started this operation. Barnabas seemed to be the one uh, who was called or was appointed to oversee operations to serve as one of the pastors, if not the pastor, but one of the pastors to help organize and develop the right culture, emphasis on culture and the right community there. And it worked. I mean, the Bible says that God's hand was on it. So I think if, if there's any sign that it was working, it's that God's hand was on it. And when God's hands on it, 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 it's not just a sign that he is happy, but it's a sign that things are gonna happen there. Things are gonna get done there. Things are gonna develop and move and progress there. So he approved highly of the way they were doing things. I think that's what we should really gather from this, uh, that God approved, God, Old Testament, God's hand being on something is, is the phrase, his face shined upon, his face smiled upon. So New Testament, its hand is on. So that's the same idea there. If you read those two phrases, they're the same, same concept. God was smiling on it. God was uh, blessing what they were doing. So the reason why we're going back and talking about this is because we want to see, we want to we wanna make sure what Antioch had, we have. And what they were doing, we are doing, because if we want to do what they do in chapter 13, and if we want to make impact like they make impact for the rest of the book of Acts, we've got to make sure that we're doing the same thing and following the same pathway that Antioch did. So I think what we can start with tonight is if we want to be a church on which God rests his hand of approval and blessing, we will pay attention to Antioch. I think that that's something we should pay, we should be very uh, inclined to pay attention to Antioch because God's hand was on this movement. And if we want that same blessing, if we want that same approval, then we'll pay attention. I think you could call Antioch Exhibit A for the local church, uh, how a church can please God, and really more importantly, uh, how it can impact the world for His glory. Acts 11 tells us there in verse 23 that Barnabas came and could see the grace of God. So the grace of God, the impact of God's grace was visible on them and in them. So from, from their countenance to their, uh, to their behavior, right, that you could see. Now, I think that's something that we need to be well aware of. Can people see that God's grace is on you and working through you? Now, the reason why God's hand was on these people, the reason why Barnabas came and was glad is because they were a people that understood that it was all about grace. They were all about grace. They were all about Jesus. They weren't, it wasn't a legalistic thing. It wasn't a religious thing. It wasn't a for show thing. It was a grace thing. And when it's a grace thing, it's a Jesus thing. And three things that grace does and three things that Jesus does in our lives. He forgives us, he delivers us, and he empowers us. So when the Bible says that God's hand was on them, it's because grace was in them. And you know what grace was doing? It was forgiving them of sin or had forgiven them of sin. It was delivering them from sin. And we often leave this, leave this third part out, but it's just as important. It was empowering them for better things than sin. Now, listen, we love the forgiveness part. And, and a lot of times we don't move past that, but we ought to love the deliverance part because a lot of us are in this cycle of, well, I'm forgiven and I sin again and I, I'm forgiven again. And I'm, I'm not saying that God isn't good to forgive you. I'm just saying there's a better way to live. And as a Christian, we're expected better things than just being forgiven over and over again. As gracious as God is, there's more to it. 
that we are delivered from sin, as in we're given a new lifestyle. We're raised up from that old way. But beyond that, we're empowered for a new way. So when the Bible says that God, God's hand was on these people because he could see grace on these people, I think it's very clear and it's, and it's important that we understand they were forgiven, they were delivered, and they were empowered. And they were making a difference in, our, in their world because of it. So Barnabas came and began teaching them about how they should remain faithful to God. So he saw this and what does he tell them? Hey, we need to make sure we keep this going, which is a big red flag to us because that, that, that reminds us that we, we can often kind of drift away. We get excited, we get revived, and we get dedicated, and then something else distracts us. So why does Barnabas tell them in verse 23, you need to continue with the Lord because he knows we're prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it, right, as we sing. So if Barnabas told them that, then I think God's telling us that. He reminds them, and he implores them, cleave to the Lord. Now, we know that they cleaved, they continued, they stayed faithful. So faithful, the verse 26 tells us they began to be known as Christians. Now, think about this. This is thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, thousands of miles away from the context of Jesus and the church and all the things that he started. Yet all these miles away, these people are being recognized as Christ-like as people who are following Jesus. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Now, this is after a year. So they, this kind of gives us an idea of what that first year was like. And man, they had a, a powerful first year of their existence, didn't they? Now, this theme really kind of calls back to Acts 4. Remember uh, when the, the disciples are on trial there in Acts 4, uh, when the, the Caiaphas and all the high priests and the religious leaders, they're trying to put Peter and, and John in prison and silence them. Remember, they go out, they huddle in the, in the back room. And, and, and what, what's the conclusion they come to? They, they say, listen, we can tell these people to be quiet, but we're never going to convince the outside world that they're wrong or that what they have isn't real. It's obvious they've been with Jesus. It's obvious that they are Christ-like, that he is alive. It's almost as if he's in the room when they're in the room. We killed him. We buried him. We, we did all that. We know we got rid of Jesus, yet it's like he's still alive through these men. And we can't deny that. So I think this is calling back to that early church mentality here in Antioch. It's as if Jesus has followed them across the world. And that's exactly what he was doing. Exactly what he always planned on. So I think the name Christian evokes and suggests a few specific things. I think it was given to suggest three things specifically uh, that would have likened them to Jesus. I think we could kind of bullet down to this. Their presence, their personality, and their practice reminded people of Jesus. That they lived their lives with this clear reminder that God is with us. And when you got around them, whether you believed that God was real or not, it was clear that they believed he was real. And whether we always could sense him or see him, it was clear that they lived as if he was always with them. And when you got around them, it was like you were around him. There was a presence about them that they could not deny. And even people that did not, believe, did not grow up in the Old Testament culture, that didn't know who Moses was or David was or Abraham and all the, pro the prophets and patriarchs were, when they got around these men, it was as if they were in the presence of the divine. And that made them want to know more. 
And that led to them ultimately recognizing them as people of Christ, people of the Messiah, people of the God who became flesh. Their presence was clear, also their personality. That when you read the stories of Jesus and you read how the disciples acted, it was clear that they were not just in name only, they were, they were like Jesus. Their personality, they were kind, they were loving, they were humble. The things that made Jesus distinct made them distinct. Read the, 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 the Beatitudes, right? The meekness and the humility and the mercy that Jesus exhibited, they did. But it didn't stop there. They weren't just actors. They weren't just hypocrites pretending to be something. They were something. They practiced what they preached. So when it says that they were recognized as being Christians, I think these three things are very, very important. They, they, you could sense the presence of God. They had a personality like Christ and they practiced the things of Christ. Now, I don't think that they became known as Christians by doing all this in a corner, do you? They didn't earn the name Christian by being silent, timid, or bashful about their faith. The Bible tells us, and I think it's pretty, it's okay to make this conclusion, they were loud, not obnoxious, I mean loud as in for the glory of God. They were bold, they were intentional, and that last one's important. They were involved, they were present in their world, they were loud, bold, intentional, and involved as they went from Judea to the rest of the world here in Antioch, more importantly, and particularly, they were involved in their community and that made Christian a household name. It says for a whole year, the church was up, was on the up and up, but the real litmus test always comes when the hype wears off a little bit, when the newness is peeled back, and sure enough, the Bible tells us that they were tested not long after this. I think this was a challenge to their faith and hopefully to prove they were legit. But the test does not come upon them in a, in a struggle that they experienced. The test is how they respond to a struggle someone else is experiencing. Now, we often think as burdens and challenges as, hey, what we go through. But in this instance, it's what something else, someone else is going through and how they respond. Now, don't you think, don't you realize this is important? Because they're recognized as being Christ-like and how they respond to this problem is going to determine just how Christ-like they were. It says that there was a famine that swept over the land and the church in Jerusalem suffered deeply. Now, why did it hurt the church especially? Well, remember, maybe you don't know this, but the church was pretty much in its own community, its own house community in the early days. Uh, remember, being a Christian was outlawed in Judea. The state was tied at the hip to the temple. So if a Christian was holding a job, they would have been fired, they would have been targeted, and they would have been you know, persecuted. Remember, they were being hunted down. So the church was kind of an underground community. They weren't ashamed, they weren't in hiding, but nobody could really hold a job, which is why it's so important there in Acts, in the early parts of Acts, that the church supported itself and supported each other. And it's why they relied on donors and wealthy patrons to help bankroll the thing because there weren't a lot of people working and weren't a lot of people out there making money to help support things. It required people that were successful to kind of pull their resources together. And remember what Acts 4 tells us, how that community developed. 
Acts 4 says, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought their proceeds of what was sold. So why is this important? Because the people relied on the support of each other. And remember what it says, they laid the money at the apostles' feet and they distributed it to each as there was a need. So this is how the early church set an example, how they established a precedent that we see here at Antioch, they're gonna follow through with. Now, the reason why I call back to this is because remember the one guy who gets mentioned back in Acts 4 that must have made a sizable donation. Thus, Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, Barnabas, the guy they sent to oversee this church. So I think it's important that we make this connection, isn't it? Barnabas, this ridiculously generous man, is who they send to oversee the operation in Antioch as if it's to say, we want to make sure that they get what Barnabas has got. What did Barnabas do? Remember, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, why was that significant? Remember, Barnabas was a Levite. Remember what the Bible tells us? Levites did not own land traditionally. They weren't given land as a part of the inheritance in the Old Testament. They were the tribe of Israel that did not have land given to them. So if a Levite ever had his hands on some land, it was a big deal, and you never let go of it. But the power of God was working in such a way that Barnabas liquidated this precious property that he had stumbled into because he saw the value in the work of God. So Barnabas is now the leader at Antioch and he leads the Antioch church to follow this example of the Jerusalem church. I don't think these repeated themes are an accident. So it's clear that the church at Antioch had this same culture of generosity. It was embedded to, to, to its identity. And the thing about Antioch that this little, this little story tells us in, from verse 27 to 20, not 27 to 30, the Antioch church didn't question whether there was more to do than just worship. That it was just naturally a part of their culture to look for ways to help people and to be present in their communities. It wasn't just about the weekend, it was about every day. Why, why were they so prone to do this? Remember, they were mimicking Jesus. And, and what was Jesus most known for? Yeah, he preached some great sermons, but more importantly and more significantly, Jesus was known as a healer. He was known for going from town to town and, and, and countryside to countryside and meeting needs. And the church was similar because they were Christ-like. What was Jesus known for? Leveraging his power, leveraging his ability for those without power and with no ability. He passed through towns and villages and he, yes, he preached. Yes, he taught God's word, but most known was his healing power. Now he was God in flesh. He could do things that nobody else could do. The disciples didn't have that supernatural power at their fingertips, even though God did work miracle through their lives. But it was never about the size or the style. It was about the heart behind it. It was about expressing their desire to see, to show others the grace of God, how he had shown them and worked through them. What sort of impact would it make? They didn't always know, but they knew that it would do what God intended it. They trusted God to use their generosity and love to change lives. So... When they hear that the church back at Jerusalem was suffering from this famine, they immediately, verse 29, 
determine in their hearts to send relief. So I don't think that this story is mentioned here to, to, as, as ironic. I think it's to show us the, genera- the culture that they had established there at Antioch as they claved to the Lord, as they followed the Lord, as Barnabas led them, as they were known as Christians, what stood out more than anything was their willingness to respond to those in need. And here when the Jerusalem church is in need, it says they determine according to their ability because each person had a different ability. So each person considered their own hearts and considered their own obligation and determined to meet the needs as they were able to. Not saying, well, I don't think this is for me. To, not, not for me, it might be for you. No, everybody said, hey, I've got something I can give. I've got something I can do. I'm gonna do what I can. They poured themselves out, just like Jesus had, just like the apostles had. So they band together to help the people in Jerusalem. And at the end of Acts 12, we're told that, down at verse 25, if you look at the end of that chapter, we're told that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they fulfilled their ministry. What was their ministry? They were taking the relief that was collected back at the end of Acts 11. So we see this thread that followed through. And now we're told in Acts 12 that not only were they suffering from a famine, but they were also suffering from persecution. So now we have a little bit of incl- a little bit of understanding that Herod, King Herod, capitalized on the church's vulnerability. So not only were they struggling financially, not only were they struggling because of the famine, but Herod capitalized on this and began to persecute them. He killed James. They arrested Peter. So it was all the more important that these People from Antioch show up with some encouragement. So now the, the church plant, the spinoff, is blessing the mothership. So it seems like Antioch is really stepping into its own here. Don't you see? Don't you, don't you think? Antioch is, is all of a sudden kind of stepping up and living out a greater example. They aren't just following, they're leading which is very important because they're going to lead an impact on the whole world here from Acts 13 on. Now, Acts 13 is going to show us how God takes Antioch and blows it up in a good way. He just blows up the movement. Nobody ever imagined this was going to happen. Uh, They had grown in the Lord. He was ready and willing to use them to grow his church, to take it to new heights, new horizons. I think there's a clear connection here. So the reason why I took us back to Acts 11 and brought us through this I think there's a connection here from their willingness and obedience in serving the church in this area of need to God's decision to send them on this global mission. It's almost as if they had shown God we're for real. Don't you see that? Don't you think think there's a connection there? That they showed God, hey, we want to serve you. Oh, we need to go back to Jerusalem and take some food, take some money, take some supplies. We'll do that. Because if that's where you want us to serve, that's what we want to do. Now, I don't know if they knew what Acts 13 was going to have in store for them, but I don't think they ever get to Acts 13 if they don't do what they had been called to do on a smaller scale. That's the point. You see, I think the connection here, the progression from 11 to 13 is that they were faithful stewards. And now they were going to be trusted with even more sacred missions for God. And this is where I want to do some thinking and I want to do some heart searching in our house tonight with you and me as the people of God. 
Jesus told a parable, a ter- parable about the kingdom of God. You can interpret it two ways. Uh, the most common way is how our earthly lives impact our eternal lives. But I also think there's a picture in that parable about moment-to-moment connections, about how one opportunity may lead to another. Jesus kind of said, this is what the kingdom of God is like, or this is what it's like to, to live in the kingdom of God. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, we know who the man is. It's Jesus, the master. We're the servants, and every one of us has been given from the Lord. We've been entrusted with his property. In this parable, he gives one five talents. That's money. That's a bag of money. Two talents to some and one to another, each according to his ability. So God determined according to what each person kind of was made of and where he wanted them to go. And we don't know the the whole about behind that. We just know that God decided to give some more and some less, but it was all according to what he saw was right and best. And then he went away. So this is the picture of the church age, isn't it? That God has called each and every one of us. We've got different lives to live, but ultimately we've been given a similar mission. Honor God with our talents. Now in this parable, talent means money, but we can take that and make that the gifts he's given us, right? So from resources to abilities, we have all been blessed with different measures of God's grace and we are accountable. I think that every opportunity we've been given to serve God is a potential building block to another opportunity to serve God. Pretty, pretty easy to make that connection, isn't it? And every opportunity that we're given is another, can lead to another opportunity to glorify God. It all comes down to this, though. It all comes down to this question. Are you kingdom ambitious? Do you desire to serve God more than you desire anything else? Do you desire to make progress for him more than you desire to make progress for something or somebody else? Think about how progress-driven we are as a people. Nothing wrong with that. We set goals and we want to meet those goals, don't we? We set goals for ourselves, our families, our companies, our countries within reach or maybe with, it appears within reach. We have personal goals, professional goals, political goals. And that's fine. We have goals and we are a people that like to meet those goals. And we usually do, don't we? We get frustrated when we don't, because usually we don't think it's our fault that we didn't meet them. It was somebody that was, you know, keeping us from it. How often do you set goals for God's kingdom, though? How driven by a kingdom ambition are you? You know what I think? I think the enemy has so many of us, all of us, deceived. He plays off this notion that God has given every one of us, because God has given an ambition to all of us. And the enemy tempts us to spoil that ambition on lesser things. One of my favorite verses, Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I think this verse says that every one of us has a desire, has a, has a, has a want, has an ambition And we all are trying to fulfill that and find purpose in this world. And the Bible tells us that only through God can we find what we're looking for. The enemy always has a piece of fruit to tempt us, to keep us from this though. It's always a step below what God has for us. Remember in Eden, God put the tree of knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil off limits. 
But what was open season? Tree of life. They could eat off of that tree forever and ever. And you know what would happen as they ate off that tree? They would live forever. But what happened when they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They were banned from the tree of life. Don't you see the parable there? That when we take from the lower hanging fruit the enemy deceives us with, it keeps us from the thing we really want and we really need. The devil makes us think that the goalposts of this world are really something to chase after and the world makes them look pretty alluring, doesn't it? Power, prosperity, possessions, everyone shows them off and we think I gotta have what they have. I gotta do what they do. I, I gotta you know, accomplish what they accomplish and, and I, don't, I don't mind going here. I mean, think about how often the churches sit empty because everybody's chasing after so many other things. Think about how often the kingdom of God is left unattended to while we're chasing after so many other things. A hundred years ago, Somebody way smarter than me had something to say about this. If you ever read something besides the Bible, pick up C.S. Lewis's com com compilation. He's the greatest theologian that's lived in the last 500 years. He wrote Chronicles of Narnia. There's some good fiction if you want to read some fiction. But if you want to read some theology, The Weight of Glory might be the best book that's been written that's not biblical. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Our sinful desires. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it's meant by the holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Come on, I know this is convicting, but should we avoid this conversation just because it's uncomfortable? I think we have stifled our kingdom ambition. We have stunted our kingdom growth because we've settled for lesser earthly things. Our hearts are very impressionable. I'm not trying to insult you. I'm saying this about me. Our hearts are impressionable. Some might say they're gullible. Solomon said in Proverbs 4, 23, guard your hearts above everything for that's where your life comes from and flows from. All the while, what matters most, our relationships, our communities, our churches, they suffer. It's tempting for the church to jettison its calling and con confirm people in their fool's quest after the world. But church, if we ever want to see Antioch happen again, we can't avoid these conversations. What sort of kingdom goals have you set? And I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to get you to set these big um, impossible goals. I mean, nothing's impossible, so set, go, go big. But what goals are you setting for the kingdom of God that you might can contribute to the kingdom of God personally and as a family and as a church, as we as a church? What goals are we setting? Psalm 76 says, make vows to the Lord and perform them. This is, this is a commandment, isn't it? That set, set those goals and meet them, reach for them. I, I think as we set these goals, and here's why I think this is so relevant for Acts. As we set these goals, make these vows and keep them, then and only then will the Lord open more doors for us to accomplish more and more for him. Don't you see why this is important? Because every goal is a building block for something else. Just like, just like in your own personal lives, right? You, you make goals and you start in a practical way and you meet that goal and you go to another goal and you go to another goal. Why are we any different with the kingdom of God? 
We've just not even set the bar at all, haven't we? And I think that's what's so disappointing and so sad. What does Jesus say in that parable in Matthew with each milestone? The master says to the, to the servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. So every little goal that we make and that we accomplish, we get the opportunity to go to an even greater place. Do I believe that God gatekeeps opportunities from us? Not necessarily, but I think that this is about establishing a notion that we're not doing it for fame or fortune. It's showing that we aren't tempted to make it about us, but rather we're doing it for God's glory and others' good. And when we are faithful in a small area, then we get a chance at a greater area. If they don't do what they do at the end of Acts 11, then Acts 13 never happens. And maybe, you would, maybe they could have chased after a lot of other things. But aren't you glad they went down that road? I mean, we better be glad we're here because of it, right? But you know what? It's important to know this. That we have to be willing to endure some things. Reproach. Maybe even obscurity. Obscurity means nobody might not notice us. We might not get any credit for it. We might get criticized for it. Maybe worse than criticism is just not even being given any attention. And I've been there. I mean, I've preached a lot. For someone who's 30 years old, I've preached a lot of sermons, right? You know, and, and sometimes you feel like, well, man, people forgot more than they'll ever remember. And that's part of human nature. But, right, there's some reproach you've got you to deal with. There's some obscurity that you've got to deal with. Sometimes ministry or serving the Lord can be a thankless task, but you cannot look for confirmation or affirmation from this world or even from your feelings. So I want to ask you, what drives you? If it's validation from this world, you might not ever get that. If it's validation from your own heart, you are not always going to feel that. The Bible tells us to not look around us or within us, but look above for validation and affirmation. And God help us if we look, above, look around or within. Because we will be completely helpless and, and vulnerable. The story of Nehemiah is something that's very important to me. It's always inspired me. Nehemiah left his fame and fortune to Babylon or Persia, and he was obedient to God, and he went to help organize and reestablish Jerusalem. Um, he was ridiculed. He was criticized. He was attacked. He was harassed. He was defamed. He was targeted, he, yet he persisted. Nehemiah refused to lower his vantage point. Remember that famous verse, that famous quote that he gives when he's up on the scaffolding, when he's getting harassed? I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should I, the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now, let me just remind you, Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to be the governor. At this point, he's laying block. He's up on a wall helping them build the wall. I mean, this is not what he thought he was going to buy in. This is not what he came to do. He was a politician. He's laying block with his hands dirty and, and, and scraping his you know, hands and tearing himself up. And he's getting lied about, and he's getting cussed, and he's getting fussed at, and he's getting all this ridicule and all this criticism. And he says to these people that are trying to distract him, I'm doing a great work. You're building a wall, Nehemiah. What are you doing? You know, come on, you're, you, you came to be a governor. He says, no, 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 not coming down, not looking down. Sometimes that voice is coming from our own hearts that we've got to say, no, 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 I'm not going to listen to that. But Nehemiah lets us in on his own struggle. There's a prayer that Nehemiah prayed again and again and again that shows us that he was fighting this battle within. 
but he, was, he refused to let it dampen his ambition. He prayed this, remember me, O God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. He would get by himself and he would just weep and he would cry and he would be vulnerable. And he'd say, God, I'm, I'm almost ready to give up because I don't really see this paying off. He would pray this prayer again and again. Remember me, oh God, remember me, oh God. Now, I don't think this was him doubting God. It was him reminding himself, fighting against that tendency. So I think this conversation was important for us to have before we embark on what's next in Acts. Because we often think that Paul and Barnabas, or later Paul and Silas, we think that they just started out on the top of the mountain on these major missions. But they didn't. They started out in a very small way. They were faithful in the few things. This wasn't about earning the right, but it was about learning and wiring their hearts to what was right, what was most important, honoring God when it might have would have been easier or comfortable to go a different, go a different way. Before we leave, I want you to listen to just a tease of what's ahead. Acts 13, verse 1 through 3. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there, was a certain, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manane, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, laid hands on them, and they sent them away. See, if you just open up to Acts 13, you think, man, these guys just started out on the front line. But they didn't, did they? There was a lot behind the scenes that led to this point. We find mention here of a friend of Herod who had joined the church. Now, contrast this to the implosion of the Herodian dynasty in Acts 12. He was glorifying himself like a god, yet he was eaten by worms. Here we see that a friend of Herod's had joined the church. Isn't that important? Isn't that amazing to see the contrast? They were reaching people that nobody ever dreamed they would reach. Antioch was attracting people who wanted to make a real impact on the world. Herod thought his kingdom was forever, but we saw it end. One of his lifelong friends found an escape with the contrasted life that the church and the Christians were embodying. We find here they were praying and fasting and worshiping, seeking the Lord for more ways to serve him. Important to notice their dreams and their desires were wired and conditioned through worship. Ours can be too. Not just private and home stuff. I mean corporate, side-by-side, brother and sister in Christ, church worship. That's what reminds us that there's more to this life than just us, more than just those that we conveniently encounter and embrace. Remember also, Antioch was diverse. There were people from all around the world, Judea, Africa, Greece, we read just in these verses. That's why diversity matters. It helps broaden our scope and understanding of God's playing field. It was because of their worship and commitment to the church that God called them to the next level. They heard God say, set apart for me. And they wasted no time in sending them off, did they? Think about that. God said, set apart for me. And they quickly send off for him. Man, we often put a big gap between those two things, don't we? But see, they were ready for this. They had been faithful in the few things. And now they were ready for something greater. 
May we arrive at this place where our ambitions are wired and conditioned by the kingdom of God. May we start by setting goals and reaching those goals and refusing to settle for anything less than that which glorifies God. And don't wait for your gut to confirm you. Don't wait for somebody around you to confirm you. Allow God to confirm and affirm and validate why you're doing this by praying and fact, isn't that, isn't that amazing? What did they do? They continued to empty themselves out. They'd already emptied themselves out more than we ever will or we ever would, but yet what did they do? They go back and they fast some more, they worship some more. And what did God do? He poured out. You'll never, ever, ever pour out more to God than he, than he won't respond and fill up. You'll never empty yourself more than God will pour back into you. The devil will say, oh, you've given too much, you've done too much, you've emptied out too much. <laughs> That's just costing us something, isn't it? He says, hey, what about this tree? And all that does is cost us of something even better. Church, as we move into the rest of Acts, it's very important that we see this pathway that we also can be faithful in. I don't know what God is calling you to do, but tomorrow God has something for you to do. If you'll just say, God, what is there for me to do? What do you want me to do? God, put your hand on me, open doors, use me, pour grace into me that I might pour it into somebody else. And if you'll do that and be faithful in that and refuse to look down from that, who knows what God might do through you after that. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're not in this for more. We're not in this for fame. We're not in this for recognition. We're in this for you. Now, God, I don't always mean that. My flesh wants me on the pedestal. My flesh wants me in the spotlight. But my flesh ultimately wants to destroy me as well. And God, help me to not forget that. Help me not to let my guard down. Help me to guard my heart. Help me to know that you have a plan that is so greater so much greater. God, help us all to be faithful in the few things. The world likes to say that there's so many things that are greater and more you know, ambitious, but Lord, help us to focus on you and help us be faithful where you've put us. Who knows what that might lead to, but it never will if we aren't faithful where we're at. God, we may, we may die there. We may live there for the rest of our lives. We may struggle like Nehemiah struggled. But God, help us to see the light that's at the end of the tunnel. Help us to believe in your promises. And God, we have to believe that you are a God that keeps your promise. You're a God that, uh, that honors your word. Lord, help us to see you and see the purpose that you've put out before us every day. And help us not to buy into the lies that there's some other way to be fulfilled. Lord, it's all for you for your kingdom. And Lord, give us a kingdom ambition. Help that to be stronger than any other ambition. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.